Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 11 this evening, and we come to the passage, the one that's been in the back of our mind the whole time, knowing it's coming, knowing it's around the corner. How can Solomon, who has and is one of the wisest men that has ever walked the earth, be so foolish. How can this happen? We've seen uh, many things throughout Solomon's reign, although, you know, in this short time we've been able to look at this. The main focus has been about what his accomplishments have been, mainly in building the temple, finally carrying out that promise which uh, David sought to be able to do, to be able to build the, the Lord a house. And as we've gone through, we've seen these pro-Solomon, anti-Solomon, these battle, this tension that forever is is there, ever present. And as you read through it, many people side from one to another. Um, But these tensions are put there on purpose. They're present. They're, They're there for a purpose. And the question that is forever being asked throughout First and Second Kings, as one book tied together, we divide it in our Bibles, but originally it's just one book of the kingdoms. And here is the question, what is going to happen to David's line? What is going to happen to David's son? What is going to happen to the promise God made David that his son would sit on his th- David's throne forever. This tug of war, this tension that is forever before them of God's promise versus sinful kings. Who will be the one that sits on David's throne forever? And as we seek to be able to understand and, and look at this narrative as we progress, have a look at this, this tremendous temple that's been built and then toward the end it, it crumbles, it falls. But what about David's line? And as we look at this passage, we need to understand that tension is ever before us to understand what is happening. And as we've already noted that Solomon has, has gathered what was already warned in, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the, the specific part of the law which, which speaks about kings, what they are to do, who they are, the, the original qualifications there. Is they're going to have asked the question, we want to have kings like other nations. And then you're la- you will set a king over you, the Lord says, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers shall be set as king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself and, and cause the people to return to Egypt in a in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now there's three things in here that the king shall not acquire for himself. Horses, particularly horses in going back to Egypt. And and Solomon has done this. We saw in, in last week's passage. You're not to acquire excessive silver and gold. And yet Solomon has done this, particularly for himself. And the, the one, wives. 
is not to be able to acquire for many wives. Now, you can, again, get the lawyer in and try and understand what does many mean uh, in this context. But here, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 11, the author opens by says, Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edenite, uh, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Now, we've seen this before, right from the very start in this beginning of his reign in chapter 3. And Solomon made a marriage alliance with the Pharaoh king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished the building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Now, again, you can get into the, the category and, and the definition. How do you define many? How do you define many horses? What's excessive gold and silver? Many wives. But we're told particularly in this verse here that he did love many women. So Solomon loves, and he loves too many. Now, there's a number, and any more than that is too much, and we get hung up on this number. What is the many? How many is too much? Now, 700 wives, 300 concubines would probably say, okay, that is too many. So here he, he, he's already broken that rule. But here the author also highlights that he loved many foreign women. And there's a list of six ethnicities here. people, uh, Women from Egypt, Moab, Ammon, uh, Edom, Lebanon, and Kahati. Now you could, you could go into a huge history lesson of, of what these histories are and their relationship to Israel. But just quickly, Egypt, as we know, uh, enslaved Israel for about 400 centuries, oppressed them, uh, would not let them go when asked, as we're looking at in the book of Exodus at the moment. Moab is not as bad as other nations, we must admit. Ruth is from there, but really it, it stems from this insensuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. And in Numbers 22, uh, the Moabite king uh, seeks uh, Balak, sought to be able to aid from the Midnites. Uh, and so we see this conflict here between these two nations. Amon, that evil king that we met in 1 Samuel chapter 11, Nahash, and Nahash was the person where they sought to be able to try and make a treaty, and he, he responded and said, here's the treaty that I'm going to make with you. I'm going to rip out your eyes. That's the best deal I can come up with. And that's the, the country that Saul defeats, the nation that Saul defeats, Edom, uh, from the descendants of Esau. And they didn't let Israel pass through uh, Mount Seir, uh, Edom, when they left the Exodus. Uh, David uh, subdued them in, earlier in Second in, in Samuel. Uh, they give grief after Solomon. There are enemies here of um, Israel. The Sidonians from Tyre and Sidon. They're wicked cities known for their wickedness. Uh, this is, is, Jesus used them as an example in the Gospels. Hittite, uh, they descended from Heth, the son of Can Canaan. And Esau married Hittite wives. And again, we have this conflict, this, this past history. But this is not the problem of Solomon. Although it's not good, it's not the problem shown in the Bible. We see, even when we see them called in princesses in verse 3, that what we see is here he is making political alliances with these nations. Again, you turn back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, and here 
uh, Solomon makes a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and this is exactly what he's doing with these foreign women that he's taking as to be his wives. What he is doing is he's making political alliances with all these nations around him. It's not good, but it's not the problem. We're told the problem very clearly throughout this whole passage. That uh, even very clearly in this passage in verse 2, where the author highlights for us from the nations concerning the which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. So it's interesting here, the author doesn't then uh, look to Deuteronomy chapter 17 to be able to build his case. He actually turns to Deuteronomy chapter 7, which speaks of all the people of Israel. And actually what we see is this is quite a big issue that will flow through all the, the story of kings during this period of time of what happens in this. Actually, Nehemiah in chapter 13 explains that it's because of what Solomon did as he looks back that this is really the root that comes out in bringing it all, all about that Nehemiah has to address after the exile. But here, the author quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 7, the first four verses there. And the author, when he's speaking about uh, Solomon's many foreign wives from foreign nations. He, sa- he quotes Deuteronomy 7, where uh, the law says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering in to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girishites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jezubites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall not make, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons and or or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. He would destroy you quickly. And here we see, even way back to the beginning of Judges, here the people go in under Joshua, and the beginning of Judges spells out that they did not drive out these nations appropriately, that here these nations still dwell. There are certain tribes that didn't drive them out. And then that begins the process that leads to all the time in the period of Judges of them following other gods, following uh, other Sikhs of worship. And in the end of Judges, what you see is the Benjamite clan, who was a clan that didn't drive out these other nations, actually turn out to be worse than the nations around them in their acts. They're They're worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the example that we see. And here, now Solomon, you're seeing all the run-on effects, even underneath Solomon's reign. But here, it's very, very clear they're not to make covenants, and that's exactly what here Solomon is doing. He's marrying these foreign women to have alliances with these other kings. And what we'll actually see is these alliances that he's making uh, with Solomon actually backfire completely on him. You'll see that in the coming chapters. But they're not to intermarry. 
Now, when we read passages like this, we need to understand that what we're talking about is not about interracial marrying. The relationship between uh, Ruth and Boaz is never condemned in the Bible. The reason is that Ruth, although a Moabite by birth, her ethnicity, she is a believer when Boaz marries her. That she takes on Naomi's God to be her God. So the issue of intermarrying is not interracial. it's, It's about the God in which they serve. So the New Testament principle that we see here is non-believers marrying believers. And the New Testament forbids that type of marriage because they're on a completely different wrong foundation. And so the Old Testament does not then exclusively be saying that it's not that you shouldn't marry people from other countries, for then I would be breaking that rule. It's that you shouldn't be marrying people from different religions who worship different gods. And the warning in in Deuteronomy chapter 7 is that what will happen is you will start to worship their gods. They're not going to come to be able to worship you in the sense that they're going to come and and begin worshiping your god. The the issue and the danger in Deuteronomy is you're going to go and worship uh, their gods. And that's exactly what highlights in in verse 4. That you should, they would turn away your sons from following me and serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will destroy you quickly. Now we will get there in verse 9. Next week we'll see this. And the anger of the Lord was, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. So the issue for Solomon is not that he is breaking the seventh commandment that you shall not commit adultery. He's not that he's breaking the seventh commandment, although he is. We'll get to that. But the issue is that he's breaking the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me. Now we see this clearly in this passage. You read with me from this whole section from 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1 to 8. Now the king and now King Solomon loved many, many foreign women among the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and the Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Melech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. So here we see a huge issue in here. And again, if we get hung up on the many portion of the wives, we lose the point. If we get hung up on the, um, the, the... the quantity of wives, then we get hung up on something that is going to be a huge issue. 
What we see here is that it's an issue of love and devotion. It's an issue of worship, that thou shalt have no other gods before you. That here Solomon loved these foreign wives, and this love then drives him away from worshiping the one true living God. You see that in the verse, uh, end of verse 2. For surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. And then Solomon clung to these in love. And his wives turned away his heart. Verse 3, verse 4, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. Verse 4, and again, verse 4, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Verse 5, Solomon went after Asheroth, uh, Mancom, and did not wholly follow the Lord. In verse 6, Solomon built a high place. And then in verse 8, and so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. The issue here for Solomon is not the marriages. It's a worship problem, not a marriage problem. Now this is important. Because all the kings that we will look at in First and Second Kings are measured on the exact same metric. It's all in comparison. What is the king's relationship to high places? How do they respond to what former kings have done and set up? Now, before we unpack this understanding of the heart and worship, we need to understand what I'm not saying. It doesn't then mean that we are indifferent about all these other types of sin. It's not then saying that Solomon did not sin in having 700 wives, or that he did not sin in going to Egypt. These are great markers that we will see throughout the whole book of Kings. What we need to understand is when Jesus says, what is the first and greatest commandment? It's not then that all the other commandments are equal to this. This is the first and greatest commandment. And here Solomon is breaking this commandment. And often I think we try and denote sin and rank sin, but we often forget this. Every sin rooted at its core is a break and a violation of the first commandment. Every single sin. It's not first because it just so happens to be the shortest or whatever it might be. It's first because it is the first and greatest commandment that thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so every, viol- every sin is a violation of this one commandment. When you covet, what you are doing is you're seeking to be able to serve something else other than God. You're not serving him wholly. Now, this is one metric that was used at the start when Solomon asked for wisdom. How was Solomon then to rule justly over these two prostitutes and this one baby? So we see that marker that here he rules justly. He asked for wisdom. He does do these things. But if that's our metric, then we're going to have a flawed understanding of how we are to look and view these kings. But if we then apply a different metric to this, and if we just merely say that Solomon didn't have all these wives, then that wouldn't be a problem. Then we've missed the point. Because actually Saul only had one wife compared to David, who had eight wives. Now Saul had, did have a concubine Rizpah. But here, David had wives, eight wives listed at least, and then concubines as well. And if that's our metric, then we 
fail to understand the metric that the Bible uses. Actually, Ahab, one of the worst kings we will look at, only has one wife. So if that's the metric, then Ahab should be a good king. But that's not the metric the Bible uses. So we need to be careful when we're looking at this that this isn't then what we rank people and kings by, because that's not the core of what the author of First and Second Kings wants to get at for us. We will see them do wicked and evil things. And that's not to say that's not important, but we need to get at the heart of the matter, because the matter of the heart is the heart of the matter. But the Bible seeks to be able to go deeper, to go further. So what is the sin that Solomon does that turns the anger of the Lord to him? Uh, anger of the Lord upon Solomon. I think you see it clearly in verses 4 and 6. I think you see it throughout that whole passage. But, but here you see in verse 4, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And again in verse 6, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. So what does it mean that Solomon's heart was turned away, that Solomon's heart was not wholly after the Lord? And when we think of the heart, we think of merely as some epicenter of emotion. We, you know, obviously we understand there's, there's the actual heart in our body, and Hebrews even had that understanding. Uh, 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 Nabal, the, the fool, Abigail's former husband, uh, had a heart who turned to stone. He had a heart attack. His heart stopped working in uh, the book of 1 Samuel. So, so the Hebrews understood that. But when we speak of the heart, it's not merely just emotions. That's really what we talk about when we follow your heart. It's not then you sit down and do a pros and cons list. It's, it's you've got feelings and emotions, and that's what you want to be able to see. That's an aspect of what the Bible speaks about when we speak about the heart. We, that's what we see here in the word love, that he loved foreign women, that there's some emotional aspect to here. But the heart in the Bible speaks of more of the epicenter of a person's being. We might say that it's a mixture of three things that we would have in our vocabulary. And even then, I don't even think that they're, they're perfectly intertwined or a holistic picture. But we would say the heart is the mixture of the mind the emotional center of what we would refer to as a heart now, but also the gut, that we have a gut feeling, right? We're, we're speaking not of emotion there. We're speaking of emotion, uh, drive, affections. And this is what the, the heart is in the Bible. The heart is mind and, and emotion, heart, and also that gut. Heart is something that centers, as the Bible describes, on affections, on desires, on knowledge, understanding, wisdom, discernment, fear, distress. Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2 has a broken heart, you might say. So when we, we look at this heart being turned away, it's not merely that his affections, his, um, his, his emotion has been turned away. That's an aspect of it, but it's not the whole aspect. Proverbs chapter 4 explains, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for, for, for from it flows the springs of life. Hear that, that, that drive that uh, helps a person. Or 
the desires of your heart here in Psalm 73. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Again, your heart is not just emotions, but here the, the drive, emo, the, what uh, does this. And, and Jeremiah actually explains that there's an issue with everybody's heart. It's not that we're missing vows or that it doesn't work as what it should, although that might be the case for some people. But here Jeremiah says that here, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Here again, this, this core problem within us is that we're, we don't have the right affections and, and desires and our emotions and our mind and understanding the wisdom to be able to discern things, those feelings. And Solomon's problem is his heart. Jesus would explain, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And here Solomon's problem comes down to that heart. And the problem is that he does not love the Lord your God wholly. It says wholly true or wholly follow. And this is the, the, the basis of the command which should have been recited uh, morning and evening. A good Jew, especially in the times of Jesus, would recite this. O hear, O Israel, known as the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And here, this is the, the worship problem that Solomon has. And his heart is divided, his heart is torn. And he's not following the whole, uh, the Lord with his whole heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the whole of my life is to be a worship of God. The whole of my life. And here Solomon is not wholly following the Lord and not wholly worshiping him. So when we think of the problem of the heart... We see that there was an aspect of flesh, that darkened part. This is why in Deuteronomy, a part of the law explains that the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And here, that, that problem of flesh in the heart, that darkened part, that desperately sick aspect of the heart, is at the core of Solomon's problem that he does not love the Lord your God with his whole heart. He loves these foreign women. They're driving him away. They're turning his heart away. But the metric is often then compared to David, that they, he did not love the Lord his God wholly, follow his, his, his heart was turned away to truly follow the Lord or wholly, wholly true um, as his father David had done. And David becomes the metric in which all the kings are compared to. The wicked kings get other, compared to other wicked kings, that there it was just like his father before him, or, or uh, Manasseh or Ahab. They become key kings that, that become referenced in the wicked and the evil line. But here David is often and always the reference of, of the true and good king. Now what does that mean? Jeremiah says that the heart is, is sick, desperately sick. And we know that David was a sinner, especially with the wife metric. <laughs> we see this. We know that he doesn't follow the Lord 
in, in Chronicles exp- expresses that he had the issue with Uriah the Hittite. But it then doesn't mean what we're looking for is a sinless person. Because David then is the metric. But you notice in David's prayer, Nathan comes to him, confronts him about his sin with Bathsheba, his sin with uh, killing and murdering Uriah. And, And David prays this, creating me a clean heart. O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He understands the brokenness, the depravity, his desperately sick heart, and he prays that the Lord would create in him a new heart. Where he writes in Psalm 9, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, and will recount all of your wonderful deeds. This is exactly what set David apart from all of the other brothers. As Samuel saw Eliab there and he said, this must be the king. And the Lord speaks to Samuel and explains, Do not look at it on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So here we get a a privy view of what the Lord is through the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration. We get to see these kings' hearts. Not what they merely do externally. That might be fruit upon the tree to be able to reveal the root of their heart. But here we get, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what their heart is like. How the Lord looks upon their heart. And here David is set apart from his brothers, particularly because the Lord sees his heart. It's exactly what drives him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When the king lived in his house, the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Again, this desire for King David, he he wants to be able to glorify and worship God. He says, the God of the ark in which I worship needs to dwell in something greater than a tent. And we understand how that goes. But again, the key to all of this is worship. That here... As giving the Ten Commandments, the foundation. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Again, the foundation of the law is salvation found through God, delivering them out of that hand and house of slavery. Matthew Henry says that you cannot worship God aright who do not worship Him alone. You cannot serve two masters. Worship comes down to who are we worshiping? Everybody worships. The question is, who do you worship? Why Moody explains that Satan doesn't care what we worship as long as we don't worship God. And we will see the demise of many a king 
the fall of many a king with different things. For Solomon, the love of women seems to be paramount, but his love for gold, his love for acquiring many horses for himself, all become apparent fruit upon the vine. That here Solomon is a tragic tale. And sadly, we will see more and many a tragic tale throughout this whole time as we look at these two kingdoms, or eventual two kingdoms. But also, it's a tale of caution. We often think that, think that sin is a young man's game. You think of lust of the eyes and how apparent that is for young men. You think of the, the race to the top of power and fame and how that's a young man's game. But the truth is that it's a game found in life. Any person with a living, beating heart still has that desperately sick heart within them. And here we see that Solomon, when he was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. A warning that sin is always crouching at our door. Satan is always roaming the earth, seeking in whom to devour. And it's not always the young men or women that fall. Our whole life is a battle in which we live. Timothy, uh, Paul writes to Timothy at the end of his book, and he's there standing on death's door. He knows that execution is about to happen to him. But he says, I am already been poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Not only me, but all who have loved his appearing. Here's Solomon. A word of caution, a danger for us is that this love in the end of his life drew him away from loving the Lord. And here Paul explains that he has loved the Christ's appearing. He has fought the good fight. He has finished the wraith. He had kept the faith. All of these things are things of endurance. If you give up fighting, you will die. If you keep on give up running, you will not finish the race. And Solomon is a word of caution. Now we don't know, I think, in this passage, if we were to say, um, you know, is Solomon saved from this passage? It is definitely a word of caution. I think that for me, Solomon uh, is inspired by the Holy Spirit to be able to write Scripture. So I, I tend to believe that he is saved. But even in here, we see that his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God. That possessive pronoun there is very, very important. Throughout this passage, it seems that he does not deny the Lord. He sins. But then what is his hope? What is our hope? If our heart is twisted, if our heart is uh, drawn away, but our hope is then not found in our works, where then we just merely replace our works with, in Solomon, we place a different metric on there. But this truly comes down to 
Christ's work, Christ's uh, true heart. In the garden, Adam and Eve are placed there to be able to worship God. In Genesis, they're told the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to be able to work it and keep it. This word is, is used of priests in the temple. But what he does, he doesn't worship God. He desires more. He desires to be God himself. But then when Christ appears, the true king, whom follows in um, David's line, the promise in which we know in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But here Jesus is confronted by the devil in the temptation. The devil took him up and showed him the kingdoms of the world in the moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, all of it will be yours. Christ came to be able to rule his kingdom, to rule the earth, and here Satan tempts him to try and take the line of Adam. But Jesus answered him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only shall you serve. The true and right king we look to is Christ, who does truly love the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might, who fulfills the law for us that we might be able to be true worshipers of him. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.